Welcome to the episode. Before we begin, remember that you can ask us a question and we will answer it on the pod at the end of the episode. You can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. We are discussing the readings for the 23rd Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. This week's readings deal with a tricky, sometimes awkward issue. The prophet Ezekiel answers the ancient question, am I my brother's keeper? St. Paul says love fulfills everything. And the gospel offers us some advice on fraternal correction in interpersonal relationships. But first, the sacred and the profane. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a heavy intro. (laughs) I thought it was good. It was very good. Thank you. But anyway, this Friday, Friday the 8th, we celebrate, yes, September 8th, we celebrate the Nativity of Mary, the birthday of Mary, Mother of God. It's one of three nativities that we celebrate. So obviously we celebrate Christ's birthday, mm-hmm. Christmas. That's I think it goes without explanation why we celebrate that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it does at right. least. But then we also celebrate Mary, and then we also celebrate John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, these are... Mary is, a little, is understandable, if you, under, if you understand... Kind of Mariology and everything like that. Yeah, the but, highest of all the saints. Right. Yeah. Right, and it makes sense. But also, why John the Baptist? Yeah. And th- I mean, there's a few reasons. There's some traditional reasons. You know, there's a lot to do with sort of their sanctification, particularly mm-hmm. at birth. You know, you have Jesus, obviously without sin, Mary, the Immaculate Conception, and then there's John, who wasn't consumed or who wasn't um, conceived immaculately. Yeah. But was sanctified. Some people say that's how they interpret. Right. Well, and and Christ saying, you know, of all the men born of women, none is greater go. than John the Baptist. There you go. So our Lord is already saying that he was special <laughs> upon his birth. So, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and in the the old confidior from the Latin Mass, it's John the Baptist is singled out as as someone to pray, to pray for. Oh, was that right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, as well as Peter and Paul. but So I'm trying to think, what is it about these three that we'd celebrate their birthdays? Yeah. And I'm thinking that it has to do with their sort of Mary and, and John as preeminent forerunners right. of Christ. You could right. say that Mary is, in a sense, like the first believer, and then you have John as the fulfillment of all the prophets. He is the end of... Biblical prophecy. In yeah, a sense. I think for for Mary, it seems like her nativity is celebrated, perhaps because she was the first one saved, right? Sure. Uh, and so uh, you know, she stands as a sign, an eschatological sign, in right. a sense. And so, because she was born without sin, um, she partook of the graces uh, that Christ bestowed on the world to redeem us. Before she was even born, and so this is a sign of things to come, in a sense. Right. right? She she represents a new era. Right. Um, and that was even before, of course, obviously, <laughs> before her son was born. You know, she, you know, her son was born of her, and so upon her birth, there was a shift in history. Really, mm-hmm. uh, that was monu- monumental, really. And so I think it's proper to celebrate her birthday. Um, right. I think. Jesus, Jesus, Mary, and John all signify this this new era that mm-hmm. has come. Yeah, that Mary is sort of this the gateway through which Christ enters the world. Yep, and, and, and issues in this new era, 
And John is also the one who is this, again, preeminent forerunner who points to Christ mm-hmm. actually and says, the Lamb of God. Right. Because, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but you wouldn't necessarily say that, or I would think you wouldn't necessarily say, that you would call John a type of Christ. So the old prophets, right. you would say, in a, are, pro, are types or foreshadowings of Christ, whereas since John is contemporary of Christ, you would call him more of a forerunner in pointer two. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I've never heard people say like, I mean, their their enunciations are very similar, but yeah. and there's a relationship. But I, I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, "Well, John was a type of Christ." No, but, that's that's a good point. I never thought about that, but that I think your point stands mainly because they lived, they were contemporaries, mm-hmm. right? And so. John had something directly to point to. There was no kind of typology or analogy that he had to make in his life or what he was pointing to that would be like, oh, well, that's analogous to Christ, right? And we could see a type here. Right. It was very direct where he literally pointed to him, the physical God-man, and said, that's who I'm pointing to, right? Right. Whereas the other types in their lives, uh, in their messages, they weren't literally pointing to a physical man, Mm -hmm. Christ, but those things connected to Christ in a more symbolic way. And so, yeah, I never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going with. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's <laughs> that's, a, that's a valid interpretation. Right. And then, of course, you know, Mary, as we said, you know, the bearer of, of God, yeah. you know, the, of the God-man and, and issuing in this, this new age. Yeah. There's a lot of symbolism and kind of archetypal imagery about the virgin and the mother mm-hmm. as this... This new era has begun. You know, children are symbolically potential, right, of a new age. Yes, exactly. And that they point the, to the future. Exactly. Yeah. And the people who bring that about are mothers. Right. So she is this the mother of the new age, yep. in a sense. And, and John the Baptist, kind of, he, he's, he's a bridge character, right? Mm-hmm. He, he bridges the old and the new, right? He's the last of the prophets uh, pointing to something yet to come. And John the Baptist also, in the Gospels, we know that he is older than Christ, and so he's born before Christ. Uh, so on a biological level, he precedes him, right? But, of course, the more important preceding is the symbolic pointing to he who is to come. But so, so yeah, in both Mary and John, we see this bridge between the old and going into the new. Right. And so I, I think that that gets at the reason why we would celebrate their nativities. And it is interesting that aside from Christ, they are the only two nativities that we celebrate. Right. They both get multiple um, feast days. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Well, John even gets it, his passion. He gets his passion, that's the, right, yeah. Um, I think that's the only one, really. Yeah. Did we... When is, when, when is that feast day? Uh, that was a couple... That was, that that was, was recently, yeah, right? That, uh, it was, yeah. It was the 24th. Yeah. 24th, 25th. Um, August has some um, I was, strong feast days and memorials. Yeah. You have yeah. Monica, Augustine, uh, the, the martyrdom of John the Baptist... So, yeah, it's, it's same with Oct- October as the same thing. But yeah, so there, there's so much you can say about, about the feast day of of uh, Mary's nativity in the mm-hmm. not the readings of the day, but in the office of readings in the liturgy of the hours. You get the um, Genesis narrative right after the fall and the promise mm, of yeah. the, the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Yeah. Uh, so. so you have Mary as as that which will. Uh, Bring about the new age that will overturn the the uh, rule of Satan. Right. The proto gospel, right? As it's and then, to. and then you have 
um, in the readings of the day, the gospel is the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew. Yep. So you have, again, this, this peculiarity of her when you look at the fact that she's considered the, the husband, or um, Joseph is considered the husband of, of Mary, but not the father of Jesus. And so there's, there's this whole imagery of a, a, new, a new day is dawning, a new era is dawning. Mm-hmm. But, so that's the sacred. The profane is that... <laughs> <laughs> Hard pivot. Go yeah. ahead. The profane is that today Starfield came out, if you didn't yeah. have early access. Which I don't. And I knew it was coming out um, in the beginning of September. I didn't realize it was going to be today. And this... I'm not familiar really with um, Bethesda's mm-hmm. um, games in, in in the sense of I haven't played them. I know about them. Fallout, yeah. uh, Skyrim. These are huge open world games. Uh, but leading up to this release of Starfield, it looked amazing. Like all the trailers, all the commentaries from the developers, uh, like this sci-fi universe. Uh, it just yeah. the vibe looks right. <laughs> it looks it looks pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Uh, Skyrim came out my senior year of of oh, is that right? of college, okay. and it was right when I was finishing. I was in like the last weeks of finishing my thesis. Oh for, man! So yeah, I, hold on a little longer. Before, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> before we it, dive into that, <laughs> I, I I picked it up at midnight. I went to the the Walmart down the street that was open twenty four seven, and we we picked up our copies, and it took everything within me not yeah. to play it because I, <laughs> I I mean of course I played a little bit. But I was right at the tail end of finishing my work for my thesis. Yeah. And then when Elder Scrolls Online came out, which is you know just a, a continuation of of the Elder Scrolls universe. Yeah. I got a beta invite to play it to test it out. My first semester of seminary. Oh. And I was like, oh no, because I, I, you know it was a new place. I yeah. Was, you know, seminary isn't like college in many ways. No, right. They're, they're they're very different. So I was trying to get down the the rhythm and the life and. There's this game that's it's the, the world pulling you right. Right. And, right. It, was, it was the first. Yeah, the Great Temptation. Yes. And then here it is that Starfield comes out, and I'm just beginning to work on a master's thesis. So can I can I tell you something about that's really funny? <laughs> well, we'll we'll get back to the game really. But you know, I remember my first few weeks in seminary too. I went on like a shopping spree to like just buy stuff for my room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my excuse. I was like, I need stuff for my room. But I was also just buying lots of like knickknacks and maybe stuff that I didn't really need. And I remember I was looking at my bank account. I was like, okay, I got to stop this. <laughs> but I was telling one of my um, friends in seminary, uh, I was like, yeah, I just bought a ton of stuff and I got to slow down on shopping. And he said, that's weird because I did the same thing. And we were reflecting. And he's like, maybe this is like subconsciously like we know that we're entering into like a deeper spiritual life. And we're trying to like hold on to the world yeah. before like it's ripped out of us, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so maybe there was an instinct going on there. I just found I remember that conversation. I was like, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah, you have to be forgiving with guys in their first, you know, real year of seminary because they're in the death throes yeah. of their of their former selves. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. They're, they're trying to separate from the world and Yeah, that body soul they're trying, tearing yeah, is right. painful. They're they're trying to enter into a new new way of life and compensatory behaviors come out and yeah. all sorts of things. So <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta be forgiving. Yeah. So are you going to get Starfield today? I have it downloaded. Yeah, you, you do. So okay. I will, I will be pay- playing it later. Okay, cool. Today, the, on Wednesday. So 
my hesitation with like anything open world is that uh, I I love linear storytelling within games. Uh, I'm all about like the campaigns and the first person, like single player modes of games. Uh, this is my biggest critique of um, the last two Zelda entries, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. Very impressive on like this massive open world scale, but it the, the story leaves a lot to be desired. And that's what I fell in love with with the original Zelda games, especially Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, uh, Twilight Princess. Those are probably my three favorite ones. But they were very linear, linear in his storytelling, and the storytelling was so rich with lore and myth. And as you're learning, you're you know you're connecting to these characters, whereas these open world games, they sacrifice some of that, right? I know that they're you know in, in those um, the la- last two Zelda games and in Starfield, I'm sure, and there's a storyline, but that's not really like the focus, right? Mm-hmm. It, the the focus is exploring, and and it's that massive, like the the. The plethora of opportunities in exploring, and so that uh, that's obviously it's a post, a personal. It's a postmodern thing. game, a, you know. <laughs> yeah, like that's man's right. Radical freedom to choose. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the chooses absurd. Nothing. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's just a, like my personal, you know, preference. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I, um, I love the the RPG genre, the open world, yeah. the MMOs. I I'll play them for hours and hours, and this is perhaps why man must give his life to something greater. Ooh. Because I will just sit there and I'll play, <laughs> yeah, and I'll play, yeah, and I'll play. It's but tempting now I have to a just wife, lose yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have a life and a wife, right? Um, no, that's right. It's just, and and I think has maybe Peterson or maybe Joe. I can't remember Joe Rogan. Maybe mentioned something about like this. You know the the uh, the impulse for a lot of guys to throw themselves within. Video games yeah. is that you're finding this, you're living vicariously through the hero, right? And it's the hero within the game that goes on an adventure, right? And mm-hmm. you know, slays dragons and is you know confronts danger and becomes the man. It's like that's what we're all called to do in a real way. But it's right. very easy to lose yourself and say, well, well, I can sit in the safety of my home and live that out, right? Yeah. So maybe that's what's going on on a psychological level. But yeah, and Peterson's talked about that. A few times that what you're looking for, why why these games are attractive to you, is because of their deep archetypal content, but also, it's it's what you want, yeah. and it's the adventure that you're being called to. I mean, even as a kid, I, I've played the Elder Scrolls games and Bethesda games for years. Mm-hmm. I played Morrowind, Oblivion, Skyrim, and then yeah. so on, and that was what got me hooked into Morrowind as a kid was this um, this adventure aspect yeah. that you were just thrown into this world. It was a bit Lord of the Rings esque, right? You're right. on a journey and you're going to places you've never seen before. Yeah, it was very exciting. But yep, and that's, I will. Yeah. I'll, I'll fill you in if you don't get it. Well, even if you get it, you can fill me in. On I may it. get I'll, it. I'll fill um, you in on it. Well, you yeah, can come we'll, over and, and yeah, watch, yeah, definitely, you know? definitely. Um, no, and that's my experience with. Um, I remember uh, Zelda: Ocarina of Time, where you start out as a child. When you're playing that game, you start on a child in your in the forest where. That, that, that's your home. And then after you f- defeat the, the first boss, you leave the forest. And I remember that, that cinematic like panning of Hyrule Field. It's like this open field with the castle in the, in the background and the, the, the music of adventure. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I'm going to go off onto my adventure. All from the comfort of your home. You know, it's beautiful. <laughs> the adventure's out there. It's yeah, exactly. There. Not in your books, right? As Gandalf tells Bilbo. <laughs> That's that's right. So we all need a Gandalf to 
call us to prod us on our way. Yes, yeah, exactly. To, to get us into real adventure. All right. Well, we have our French press, and we're ready to go. Yeah, this one's good. I was, I was just thinking about that. I was like, this is a smooth. I had been perfect. I've been uh, perfecting it. I, I had week. a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee before oh, we got here, and this is better. <laughs> so. I hope so. <laughs> All right, so we have our first reading to, uh, for Sunday will be from Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter. And in Ezekiel, the Lord is calling him to be a watchman, he says, for the house of Israel, that Ezekiel is supposed to warn uh, the, the, the Israelites of their sin. Mm-hmm. So... He says, the Lord says, if I tell the wicked, a wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade the wicked one from his ways, he will die from his guilt, but I will hold you responsible for his death. So Ezekiel is using a very common image of, I think, the shepherd, the priest, the pastor, I think by, by extension, anyone with authority, and it's, it's this image of mm. the watchman. And I think you see it a lot in the liturgy when it talks about uh, images for pastors in, in in readings and such like that, in antiphons and all that. They talk about the, the pastor is someone who, who is on the lookout. I think it's a an apt image because if you think about the watchman, historically is the one who's up on a tower. Mm-hmm. He's up on the walls. And what, what that gives him is he's able to see out further than those who are on the ground. He can see right. the horizon. So he can see... He's a metaphorical watchman to see the metaphorical horizon of, a, yeah. of, of an approaching army. Right. So what he's saying is, I can see further than you. I have greater perspective on your sin. And if you head down this way, I, I, I can see what your horizon looks like. Right. Your metaphorical horizon. No, right. And, and you can imagine with this analogy of the watchman, if a watchman does not do his job and the city succumbs to... An attack. That watchman is held the, responsible. Oh yeah, like he's the, like I would consider a mercy if he's not put to death, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. I mean, like that. No, that's a serious job, right? Just to 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 watch over your city, right? And so, if our Lord is making this analogy between um, the watchman and you know uh, watching over people's sins, then as our Lord says, you will be responsible for his death, right? And so, there's a that's a that's a heavy responsibility. But I do think that that it speaks to um, almost like a, a shared uh, like you like you said in the, our opening comments. Are you your brother's keeper? Well, all right, here it is. Yes, we're responsible for each other in a sense. So, yeah, the the, uh, the, the watchman is one. I think. All right, to backtrack. I, I think there are many ways to describe a prophet. Um, and Ezekiel's in a, in a unique position because he's actually a priest and a prophet. Mm, yeah. So he's describing his prophetic vocation here. But a prophet is somebody who recognizes patterns, I think. That's part of a definition. Is that he sees, it's not so much that they see the future, it's that they see this pattern that's mm-hmm. happening because they have this higher perspective. They ascend up the tower and they can see right. further. So what what the watchman's duty, what the prophet's duty is to say, again, I see the pattern of your behavior. I see where this is going. 
And you might not be able to see it, but I see on the horizon, but you cannot see mm-hmm. because of a higher perspective. So you ascend the watchtower, you see what's on the horizon, you send back down and you tell or descend to say what, what's coming. And I think this is applicable certainly to parent-child relationships. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that a, a child or a parent acts as the watchman for his children. Mm-hmm. Certainly for you as a priest or any priest yeah. is, is somebody who is supposed to tell people. Recognize the dangers. or Recognize the, the dangers, yeah, exactly. right, and recognize yeah. what's coming. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that um, I was made aware of as I was going through these readings. <sighs> Disclaimer, I'm a phlegmatic. <laughs> I... Uh, on a, my natural inclination is to avoid conflict. That's my natural inclination. Sure. And so it is difficult when I see something in someone that is leading them away from God or leading the community away from God. And I have to step up to the plate and call it out. Because in a certain sense, I am the only one that should call it out because I am the one that's watching over my flock, right? That's entrusted to me. There was a case uh, last year where I had to have a talk with some people, sit them down, uh, because what they were doing in the community was just not, it was it was wrong. It was just wrong. And it took everything out of me, because <laughs> being a phlegmatic, I was like, this is exhausting. I don't want to have this conversation, but I had to do it. And, but ultimately, it was for the good. You know, it was, a, it was a little uncomfortable. There was some tension, but we eventually came to a resolution that was actually for the better for the community which everyone agreed upon. And so while it was difficult, uh, it, it was for the better. And in a sense, you know, my conscience was cleared, right? Uh, you know, uh, this is our Lord saying that the Ezekiel will be held responsible if he doesn't uh, try to dissuade the wicked from their ways. And so I can, I can only imagine, you know, if, if you know that you have, if you're a pattern recognizer, right, like a prophet, if you have this vision from the watchtower and you don't do your duty and you allow the wicked to continue in their way, it's like, yeah, you're, you know, you're placating the, the people for a time, but what does that do to your soul, right? Like, if you know who you are, like, how, how do you live with that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, for, you know, for myself, it's, I, I couldn't. And so while, you know, my natural tendency would be to avoid <laughs> conflict, um, the conflict wouldn't be... Maybe, you know, I wouldn't face it on the outside, but it would be within, you know? Right. It's kind of like sweeping the monster under the rug. Um, Jordan, it still yeah, exists. Jordan Peterson. Right, it still exists. Yeah, right. exactly. When you... Um, so anyway, that was just a personal um, connection there as a priest. Yeah. Um, well, no, I, I, I'm also a highly agreeable person, so conflict does not come... Naturally. Natural. <laughs> yeah. But these readings really do, if you allow Scripture <clears throat> to convict you, if you allow it to, to sting your conscience, you're right you might notice that perhaps I, you, you shouldn't look for con- conflict right. and, and go out. And, and we know some people that do. You know? <laughs> right. And nor, um, as we'll get to, I think, with the second reading and on, nor does calling out sin or correcting uh, or rebuking give you the right to be uncharitable. Mm-hmm. That right. I'm just speaking the truth, I'm trying to save you, therefore I can kind of say however I want, I can yeah. be rude, I can be whatever. Right, exactly. we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. But it's still perhaps let let the let the scriptures convict you of of change if if you need that. Yep. Um, I I do think these readings 
really he another reason why they might sting us is because in our modern American kind of individualistic sentiments, we just kind of want to live and let live. Just let right. people do as you, you do know. you, I do me. Right. That's, you know, I can't yeah. really be responsible for another person's actions. Yeah. It, yes, exactly. That's a good point. Like, especially for America, like we love the sense of autonomy. Like, you can do whatever you want, right? Um, but being responsible for someone else, you know, that, that you know that guy's a grown adult. Like, he could do whatever he wants. You know. Right. What, what is? It, it seems like our readings today are in opposition to that idea. So, yeah, continue. Yeah, yeah it, no, it was, it's, um, it's exactly that. And certainly you're not responsible for perhaps initial actions or every single action. People are free mm-hmm. to choose. But if you are in the position to correct, it then becomes your responsibility. Yeah. Because not everyone has that role. There, it takes yeah. a lot of discernment and and prudence right. as Absolutely. to whether or not you are you actually have that responsibility. Yeah. Certainly priests with his parishioners and then parents with their children, they they do have that obligation. Yeah. Uh, I know Peterson's talked about this a few times of it's it's not actually loving to let your children do whatever they want. Right. Or to not discipline. Uh, something I want to get into is that concept of love already implies that. But Yeah. yeah. Well that will certainly come up in our, our second reading yeah. if we can I move there. Well, before we get but. there, I want to talk about the psalm too, because oh sure, um, uh, the the response is if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, and I find that interesting because you have almost a flip uh, throughout the readings. We're kind of given the perspective of the person who needs to admonish the sinner, but the responsorial psalm kind of takes the opposite perspective, where if you are admonished, right? Make sure that you have the humility to take that admonition in a sense. Yes. And so I think that that gets at, it gets at this idea that this is not about I'm wrong, you're right. This is not a conflict for conflict's sake. The whole theme of admonishing a sinner, trying to get him to turn from his ways is to re form the bond of unity that was broken. And so if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice of the Lord through whoever is admonishing you, then don't be stubborn in trying to hold on what you to what you think is right, but actually repent and 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 reform that bond of charity. Uh this is, you know, it kind of reminds me of um the the sophists right in Socrates' days, where every conflict they entered was only to win an argument. It was never mm-hmm. to actually get at the truth together, right? And so they actually did a lot of uh, harm to the community instead of actually unifying the community. And I feel like there's a similar thing going on here, that your heart cannot be hard in trying to hold on to what you think is right if you hear the voice of the Lord. In humility, you need to reform that bond of 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 love and unity. So right. I, and this is a big emphasis in religious life, but I think it can flow down to priesthood and, and again, family, family life, which is something like, you know, a legitimate command by a legitimate superior is the will of God. Right, yeah. And exactly. a lot of spiritual writers will talk about that, again, this is usually in the context of religious life, but I think it's applicable everywhere. If someone corrects you, discern 
quickly whether or not this is actually true. Because if it mm. is true, this person, you should take their their correction as coming from God yeah. himself, yep. you know, spe- especially from superiors, you yeah, say. Or, exactly. you know, if, if you're in the confessional and a priest says, well, it sounds like this is what's going on, and I, I, I say you stop. In that in that moment, perhaps Christ is speaking to you. Yeah. Perhaps God is saying, "Listen to my voice yeah. and don't harden your heart." Right, exactly. Again, not everything someone says to you is directly from God, but you might right. consider that it it might be. Yeah, exactly. You know, this might be a instrument of God telling you, rebuking you. Yeah, and really, that's the best way to live. Is that even if the person is maybe coming off a little too harsh, maybe he could be more charitable. Uh, you know. The way that you win in that situation is to see if there's a kernel of truth there and then apply it to yourself, right? That's that's the way to take criticism. You know, I think it would be, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater if you say, well, that person could have been kinder and not everything he said was true. It's like, well, what what was it that he said was true? Like, mm-hmm. is your heart soft enough to even take that little bit right. and grow, right? right. So. Just, just consider for a moment that what they said might yeah, be exactly. true. And um, it, that's difficult in us, you know, from a subjective uh standpoint objectively you can say this but it does hurt when you're getting criticized (laughs) and so you know to be able to step outside of yourself as much as you're able to uh and and allow your heart to be soft enough um as per the the psalm uh that's that seems to me the wisest way to live so yeah good stuff yeah let's um yeah if you want to head to the second reading because I, i think I think there's a good continuity between the readings this this week. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think the second reading from Romans really builds off the first and gives us, I would say, a principle by which we administer correction or fraternal correction or mm-hmm. or uh, rebuke. And it's this: love your you shall love the neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah. And this is obviously Paul quoting. Something from Christ, you yeah. Gotta, you know, someplace else. Um, but I still think it's it's the principle by, by which we should do this. But it's it's interesting to me because I feel like there's an immediate tension because you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. But just last week, Christ seemed to rebuke self love. Right? He said, "If you love your life, you will lose it." So how is it that I love my neighbor as I love my own life when I'm not supposed to love my life too much? Mm. And when I was looking this up and I was thinking about it, it's interesting, I came across some stuff from Aristotle, actually, from his ethics, talking about uh, how the relation that serves to define the various kinds of friendships we have is usually defined from the relationship we have to ourselves. That it's 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 not that self love or it, it, what we're not what we're not trying to say here is that the love that we give our neighbor is actually in the end actually self love you know it's not this you know sure it's, it's for just, me right right yeah. you know yeah. like, and you hear that a lot you know that's a very like Freudian yeah. or Nietzschean right. when you love suspicion. someone else you're actually loving yourself right right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. nor are we saying that I think a, a self love of of the modern age. You know, it's like put yourself first. Right, right. I think what we're trying to get at mm-hmm. is that the first thing we should love is God. Yes. And yeah. that we love ourselves how 
insofar as that it is a love of God. Is a love yeah. of God. Right. And that is actually necessary to then love your neighbor. Right. But it has to be a right ordered love. Yeah. And that's what that's the definition of charity is love of God and love of other things for the sake of God. Mm-hmm. Right. And so everything is subordinate under that under that highest love, God. Right. And so I think yeah, that that it does it does appear to be a tension between our Lord's directives from last week saying, if you love your life, you will lose it. But I think if we understand love as giving yourself away for the sake of God, right? Then we see that these two directives from Paul in the second reading and our Lord's directive from last week actually fit with each other. Because if you're loving, if you love yourself correctly, that means that everything is subordinated under God. You're not putting yourself first. You're giving yourself away to that love. Then you want everything else around you to also praise and love God in the same way, right? And so when you love your neighbor as you give yourself away, then you're also, you're seeking your neighbor's good, essentially, and saying you ought to give yourself away to God too. And anything that does not work towards that goal is actually killing you, right? Right. Um, you become wicked. And this is why in the in the reading, uh, our Lord, um, our Lord uh, Paul says, he, he goes through the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. These are all things that divide one another. These are things that are uh, like that is harmful to the community of believers. And the remedy to that is ultimately love, right? Love of God uh, for your for your sake. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if if you love, if you have God as the the highest thing that you love, then these other things fall into place. Yeah, because if if you have love of God truly, you won't commit adultery, you won't kill, you won't steal. You won't covet. You won't do anything contrary to that love, um, that it, unity of love. Yeah. And if you realize that your neighbor is is loved by God the same way you are loved by God, you won't do these things to them because these are sins yeah. mainly against your neighbor. You know, yeah. adulteries against your neighbor, killing, stealing, you know, co- and coveting what your neighbor has. These are all sins against your neighbor. Yeah. But once you have the highest, once you understand the highest precept, love yep. of God, and you love the things that God loves, such as your neighbor, then it it begins to have this right ordering effect. Yep. And that's that's what charity is supposed to do when it says, you know, when charity informs the other virtues. It, yep. it means it it perfects them and directs them to their proper ends. Right. You you shall not cover it. I guess we can that would be envy, right? Uh, yeah, I would say envy. Yeah, because I, I thought of, I remember in Dante's Divine Comedy, um, the envious uh, in purgatory, their eyes are sewn shut with um, twine. And it's a punishment against envy because the the root word of envy is um, envidia from um, Latin. Yes. Is to see things backwards. And so when you see your neighbor uh, prospering, the proper... Christian response should actually to be delight in his happiness. Like, oh, this good thing happened to him. Mm-hmm. That's good for the whole community, right? Again, like this this unity uh, that the uh, that the community should be um, enjoying. When you see your neighbor prospering and you feel sad at that, that's the opposite of what you should be feeling. 
And so that's why you're seeing things in an inverted way. And and so I just think that that's proper when we're talking about uh, love of your neighbor uh, to to see things as ordered, right? As ordered, you know, God at the top, everything being directed towards God. And if you're envious, you're, you're not able to see things properly, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, it's also interesting that Paul lists adultery as the first um, commandment here. Adultery being that great sign of division between man and God as well. Um, yeah, uh, that's a com- yeah the common imagery of unfaithfulness to God. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. yeah, throughout the Old Testament, right? Right. Um, I think here it's, it's helpful, too, to define what love is, uh, as, as Bishop Barron often says. <laughs> um, love is uh, desiring the good of the other, as other, right? Uh, and so it has nothing to do with this, again, self-love, uh, this selfish interest. But it's, if I love you, I want what's best for you. And ultimately, when it relates to, as it relates to charity, it's I want God for you, right? <laughs> um, and that, that implies an a, a objective standard of what is good. And so you can only love somebody if you know what the good is. If you desire the good of the other, then you have to have an idea of that good. And if that person is not living up to that good and you just do nothing, then you don't really love that person, right? So love implies truth, it implies a standard. And if a person is not living up to that standard, then if you truly love that person, you will admonish him, right? Right. Well, that's I want God for you should be the main driving motive for this correction. Yeah, exactly. It's, it yeah. requires a bit of detachment from self and humility Yeah. that I'm not saying this, this, this is you know, perhaps some good principles to think about, you know, when rebuking or when correcting mm-hmm. is, are you saying this because you were offended? Right. You're, there's self-love, and, and out of self-love, you're you're correcting this person? Or is it actually what I, again, from what we said from the first reading, I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. And it's actually sin degrades you. You're right, right. It's not just that you hurt me. It's a, it, you're degrading yourself yeah. and moving away from God, and I want you to have God. Right. This is ultimately about a, a salvation of your soul, mm-hmm. not some, like I said, some disordered self-love or right. you hurt my feelings. Yeah, exactly. It's not born out of pride. Right. Yeah. So, And, and I, I do think, you know, we've touched on it, that correction can be difficult, and it's because of par- – it's partly because you can have the correction turned right back at you. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be a sin of your own, and it's right. well. Who are you to correct me? I yeah. know, I know you have your problems. Like, why, why are you telling me? Why are you rebuking me, telling me what to do? I'm sure you're just as far from God. Yeah. And while while sometimes that's true, it's it's hard to accept as long as one is willing to be rebuked back. I think that there's still truth in. The correction, yeah, to absolutely. It, it's it's if you're saying what you're doing is wrong, but what when I do it, it's okay. Yeah, right. Or it's not as a big deal. If All you're right. saying no, no, you do it and it's wrong, and I do it and it's wrong, but we should both stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and and the thing is, I mean, there is there is validity to saying what you're what you're telling me is doesn't hold any water because you do the same thing. 
isn't that like a little bit of an ad hominem attack, right? You're not actually getting at this thing, but you're saying, well, because this is actually said by someone who is like this, then their argument is invalid, right? right. <laughs> yes. I mean, that would be a little bit of a fallacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, uh, somebody's life that's incongruent with what they're saying certainly diminishes the impact. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is a very hard thing to accept that sometimes truth it, can exist in people who are hypocrites. Yeah, right. Or don't live it themselves. Yeah, and it's it's hard to accept that. And that's why, you know, um, the church is fraught with scandal. It doesn't make the church's statements any less true, right? Right. Um, that's hard. That's a hard thing to accept, and I get that. But again, it's it's like this subjective perspective. You try to stand outside of that as much as possible to see the truth that's being communicated. Right. Well, I said it, it takes a great deal of detachment. Yeah. When I was re- reading over these, that's what I kept coming back to was you kind of have to get out of yourself. Yeah. And again, see the truth of maybe if you're the one being rebuked or if you have to go rebuke in, someone. In, go, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're now in the position to correct. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of a, you know, a father correcting a child. It's, it's not you hurt me, right? But again, I'm doing this for you. Yeah. Which you know, even that can be at times abused. It's like I'm doing this because I love you, kind of thing. Right. But right, that could but, be an escape. But but I do think if you fall back on okay, wait, if you know you're doing this because you love me, would you have someone do this to you? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, then it's actually false, false love. Right. But if right. it's actually, I would have someone. You know, do this for me. I, I would hope that my friends would call me back. Yeah. Then perhaps. Yeah. You're, you're actually doing it out of the out of the proper love of neighbor. Right. But it really, you really do have to see that commandment in light of first loving God, because you love your neighbor for the sake of God or in God. Right. That as as somebody who is also someone as another person who who possesses an immortal soul. And has an eternal destiny. You hope that they will achieve the same desire that you have. Yeah. I, I desire to go to heaven, and therefore I desire for you to go to heaven. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Correction isn't the funnest topic. <laughs> <laughs> the most funnest. No. Um, but moving to the gospel, let's see. Um, we have a continuation of the same same ideas here. Mm-hmm. It seems this, what I thought of first in reading this gospel is uh, the sacrament of confession, actually. Because you you have our Lord bringing in the church. Mm. And so you have, uh, yeah, you have uh, two people, brothers, uh, like immediately our Lord establishes a relationship between two people. If your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have one over your brother. But then if he doesn't listen, then we bring in the church, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses listens to, even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. There's a sense of uh, excommunication here, too. Um, mm-hmm. Like he's cast out of the community, right? 
And it seems it seems like that can kind of be harsh, but again, going back to what we were saying, this is done for his good, right? And this was the whole point of excommunication back in back in the day when the church exercised its its power <laughs> for, <laughs> with excommunications. It wasn't so much to say, "Ha ha, we got you. Now you're going to hell," right? And mm-hmm. you know, we cast you out with all the devils, right? It's not so that we can just yeah lord it over them. But it's actually to show them that, listen, what you're doing is actually leading you down a path of perdition. And if you don't recognize how serious this is, then you will end up in hell. And it's that, I think it's that punishment of being exiled from the community that can actually wake somebody up and saying, oh, shoot, I'm not actually living according to the right path. And maybe that can be enough to spur him to be reconciled, right? Right. I mean, charity extends to your your enemies yeah however charity does not extend to allowing your enemies to create discord in the community in the community exactly exactly and you know it's, it's funny how our, our lord says treat him as you would a gentile or a tax collector on the face of it that can sound like okay so are, are you putting like what is this division that you're creating among the human race <laughs> uh but it's important to re- remember how our Lord treated Gentiles and tax collectors. Like he, he had dinner with them, right? He was charitable to them. He was he, the people he reserved the the, the most um, the the harshest words were for actually the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the church leaders. He showed love to the Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners to bring them into the community, right? And that's what you know. His apostles and closest uh, disciples. They were formerly Gentiles and tax collectors, right? right. Matthew, Mary Magdalene. Uh, these were people who were outside of the community. And he showed them charity to bring them within the fold. Right. And it's all, again, it's all about bringing them in so that they all might be one in Christ. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. So, Well, <clears throat> you were right from the beginning, um, or pointing out at the beginning of the gospel, that he says brothers. Mm-hmm. And... That is an important part of fraternal charity. Is right, that you, for, yeah. you you're not obligated to correct every person that you see, right? You know, or, or, or everything that you see. But it, if you do have a relationship with this person, if it is your brother, mm-hmm. then you do have a greater obligation, yeah, because this person is actually part of your family or community or whatever it is. Um, so it's not as though this this principle extends indefinitely, but it's it's there's clearly uh, a relationship that needs to be established. Mm-hmm. It also seems like there's a bit of a, a principle of subsidiarity going on. You, know, yeah. you have the local, the most local level, yeah, going all the way up to the top. Right. right? Exactly. And, to... and it's three steps. Right. It's you and your brother, right. and it's you and two witnesses, and then it's you and a church. Um, right. So. Yeah, that, that's interesting, too. Uh, relating it back to the sacrament of confession, um, our Lord says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so there is an authority that he's giving to his disciples. Remember, this: the, the, the passage today begins with Jesus communicating to his disciples, not the large crowds, you know, on, um, on, on a mountain. Uh, this is to a right. specific um, group. Uh, and so this is where our, you know, the church gets this authority, from to bind, to bind sins, right, and to loose them, mm-hmm. according as she sees fit. So, yeah, that's um, 
I was, I was thinking about that, that binding and loosing because it was just given to Peter, right? And, and yeah, then yeah, now yeah. it's 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 given to the larger church. However, you, you're right; it's not given to just anybody. Yeah, it's said specifically to to the apostles that that you have this power. There's yeah. also a bit of um, the binding and loosing, you know, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There does seem to be a motif of, of almost like the Our Father, as you know, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, interesting. So there's, right. I think, the idea that the church is supposed to mimic the heavenly harmony, mm. or the, the the harmony and and bond of charity that exists in the Trinity and in heaven should yes. happen on in church. So when you were talking about excommunication. And we've talked about this before about you know, the inclusivity of the church. It's well, it's not unlimitedly in- inclusive. Mm-hmm. Everyone is welcome, but you don't get to come in and cause discord, right? And hatred, right? And say, well, you know, isn't everybody welcome? Yeah. And it's it's sort of the same thing in heaven. Everyone is welcome to heaven, but only if you are somebody who is detached from sin. Yeah, and even within heaven, there are. There's a hierarchy that exists, like you know, Dante shows this beautifully in Paradise. So, so Saint um, Thomas says. Yeah, well, and but even um, well-designed churches express this hierarchy, where you have the narthex, you know, you have the baptismal front, um, you know, at, at the farthest point from the um, the sanctuary, you know, you have the nave and, and and you know where the people sit, and the sanctuary. You know, if if you're an outsider and it's like, oh, you know, come to the church and partake in this, you know, this community, he's not going to march right up to the sanctuary and stand with the priest, right? <laughs> we understand right. that that's, you know, that there is a hierarchy that exists even within the unity of the church. Right. Uh, and so... And, but, the, you know, there's yeah. gradual unity as well. You see uh, with people coming into the church that they're... Right, the catechumens. The catechumens. And the, yeah, and, exactly. You know, there's a progression that way, but there's also, they'll come for part of the liturgy Yep. and then leave for education for another. Yep. It's... Not you're right. There's a hierarchy even in the unity. Yeah. But that unity is is not um. Or welcoming is not the expense of that unity. Yeah. And that's the purpose of this rebuking, of correction, of of excommunication and then reunification. Yep. Is that it's it's to preserve this bond of charity that exists in heaven that we want on earth. Yeah. Um. I thought it was insightful that you brought up the uh, Trinity and the union, union of the triune God. Because at the end of this passage, I think there is a Trinitarian s- symbolism going on here. Our Lord says, Amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So immediately you have Christ and the Heavenly Father, but then you have this image of two people being united in their prayer. And that's the definition really, well, it gets at the definition of the Holy Spirit, right? That bond between the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is this really interesting, again, this Trinitarian imagery uh, within the unity of the church that our Lord is, I, th- uh, I think, expounding on uh, it, w- with uh, two people praying and he says, even when two or three are gathered in my name, when there's a bond of people together 
and I am the center, then he is made truly present among them. And that gets, I think, at the the mass ultimately. Like the mass is the ultimate expression of that, where uh, the priest takes the the, pri- the priest cannot. It's not an isolated act, right? At the mass, um, you know, it's, uh, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours. You know, uh, the the bread and the wine is taken up from the community, and then that's how the Eucharist is made present. Uh, and so, I, you know, there's there's an interesting connection here with liturgical worship. I think that our Lord is getting at at the end of this as well. So, just some thoughts that were floating in my head. No, I I think that's exactly it about this. If you agree, that is, you you have peace among yourselves. You have harmony among yourselves. If you have that, then that will be granted. Um, I know, I think it was St. John Chrysostom says, you know, one of the reasons why your prayers aren't heard is because of this discord. Mm. Is that discord among either your brothers or among your, or in yourself is yeah. what you ask for, is that dissidence with what God wants for you. Right. Uh, or there's there's a lack of harmony between your will and the will of the community and the will of God is... God is asking for, or Christ is saying in this passage that I I will be where there is peace and where there is charity. I I will I'm there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he dwells, um, you know, <laughs> in, in you know in, in another sense he dwells always. But right, of course, and but there are there are you know distinct ways in which our Lord is present. Yes, right. Uh, you know, yes, you can say that God is. Everywhere, you know, yeah, in sure. this like ethereal sense, <laughs> uh, but you know, the most, the ultimate form of his presence, of course, is the Eucharist for us Catholics. Uh, but even then, there's you know, again, the hierarchy. There's always a hierarchy. <laughs> um, the hierarchies are inevitable. They're, they're inevitable. Um, but you know, and he's saying that in a real way. Uh, when two people are gathered in his name, then he is, he is present. Uh, it's not. That's not just saying like, oh, God is everywhere. But there's a real sense of his presence um, among t- two people that are praying in harmony. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it's this. Um, I'm thinking of a of a Dostoevsky quote, uh, I think from Brothers Karamazov, where um, Father Zosima, Z- Z- is that right? Zosimov. Zosim- yeah. yeah, says, um, you know, what what is hell, and it's Hell is the suffering of being unable to love, the in- mm. inability to love. Right. Is hell. And towards the end of this gospel, I, I, I think Christ is saying that if if you move away from this principle, if you move away from this principle of, of charity, you will you will degrade into that hell. Yeah. And then I am not there. But if you maintain charity, I am there. Right. And yeah, that's interesting about hell. Uh, you know, was it Sartre who said hell is other people? Yes. It, yeah, that that inability to actually uh, form a community of love, uh, the rejection of that. Uh, yeah, right. Is yeah. is hell in a sense? Yeah, uh, isolation. Yeah, is very you know, that the lack of charity, the the isolation of the self is yep. very, uh, or self absorption. That's what you see in Dante's Inferno. Yeah, because everybody's yeah. obsessed. With their own suffering. Yeah. And then in the deepest part of hell, uh, you have them, you have people frozen 
uh, as if like they're isolated from each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean D- Dante's Divine Comedy, his Inferno is really symbolic with how this sense of union and disunity works. You have you know even the places where it's lit on fire. I think there's a I can't remember what part of the Divine Comedy it's mentioned, but Essentially, essentially, it's God's love that actually sets hell aflame, <laughs> um, yes. because it's the rejection of that love, right? right. Uh, you know, I, I remember there was an, um, I think it was Bishop Barron who made this analogy to hell, saying like, imagine you're at a party, and you have some people that are just losing themselves to the party, uh, celebrating with each other, this great community, but then you also have some people who are resentful that this party is going on. Um, and in a sense that that party causes them torment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can think of a person maybe seated in a corner and the happier the people are, the more resentful he becomes in a sense, right? And so it's not necessarily that like there's two different places, but it's actually that love and that unity that can cause someone, if they're isolated, um, to feel hell, experience hell in a sense. Yeah. So. I like that ju- uh, ju- juxtaposition of isolation and, and unity because I think isolation is this turning in on oneself, this mm-hmm. self-love. But again, the print, the precept of charity is to love God above all things, so to to get out of yourself. Yeah, exactly. To stop thinking so much about yourself, right? And to see past the self to God. Yep, exactly. And that's and, again going back like to the psalm, like harden not your hearts if you hear His voice, so that you can move to- towards this goal of ultimate unity. Right. It's all about unity. I mean, that's theosis, right? Like, you know, becoming one in God. That's right. the goal. That's the right. goal of the Christian life. Right. Union. And, and that's, uh, classically speaking, you know, charity tends towards union. Yeah. And that that's one one of the reasons why it's such the, the highest virtue mm-hmm. is that others are about apprehending or, or grasping, but charity actually wants to unite with the thing that's loved. Right. Exactly. And you actually want to unite with God, unite with the church, and unite with your neighbors right. to, to form this this bond. Yep. Good stuff. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah. And any any other thoughts? No, I think my mind has been has expressed all its ideas. <laughs> not all of them. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not all the ideas. There's <laughs> We'll save some for next week, right? Now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We could go on for hours. <laughs> yes, yes. But but we won't. <laughs> um, okay, great. Thank you for listening. And remember, if you want to ask us a question, you can ask us by emailing basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>